Father, we ask for energy. Tordy's asked it, but we ask it again, that please you might um, uh, give us uh, hearts and minds that are able to focus and uh, engage. And we pray, please, that your word tonight for us might be a great blessing. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want, to, I want to say to you, there is a gift tonight. I've got a gift for you tonight. God's got a gift for you tonight that's really quite wonderful. It's like gold tonight, a gold nugget. Uh, but like a gold nugget, it's kind of there in the passage we're looking at, but you've got to dig a bit to kind of get it out. Uh, I mean, it, when, when you see it all, it'll be obvious, I trust, but it's not been as obvious as people kind of read, read through it. And here's the thing, it's a gift that you need, that we need, and if I can summarise it, it's this, it's the gift of security. A life that is secure. A life that you are able to enjoy being a secure person. We were made to enjoy, God made us as humans to be people who would enjoy being secure, uh, non-anxious, stable, solid, firm, confident, not fearful, insecure unstable, anxious. Um, now, who doesn't want the secure life? Who doesn't want to be secure? Everyone wants that. Um, the problem is, for my, the vast majority of it, of us, we live with insecurity. And, and this is, will be, a, I'm going to make, make a wild claim. I, I think every one of you is sitting there thinking, everyone else looks like they've got it, but I don't feel like I have. So people put on a front and are able to kind of come in and look like they're really you know, in control and confident and assertive, and, but they're all inside terrified like you are. We all live with insecurities and fears and uncertainties and anxieties and so on. You just don't see it. We're good at hiding it. It stunts us. When you live with insecurities, it stunts you. You feel it. I'd, you know, I'd do much more. I'd step out more. I'd take more risks. I'd flourish more, but I, you know, I have this thing. Um, we're searching for it. Now, how do you get that kind of security where you can be that person who's secure? Is it just by being yourself, learning to be yourself? No. Is it, is it about being an achiever? If I can just find something I'm really good at, that'll build my self-esteem. Is it finding a right partner, the right marriage partner who will not be non-judgmental and I'll flourish in that? Is that what it is? Is that where you find the security that means you can grow and flourish and so on? Well, the gift tonight in this passage is there's a place for you to find it to begin building a life that will transform you over the years ahead it is really quite wonderful but it's easy as i say to pass over it and miss it the passage we're looking at it's quite, itself quite complex um, and it says a bunch of things, like for instance, it says something about a man called Melchizedek. And we won't have time, a lot of time to go tonight into the topic of Melchizedek. Praise God for that for most of you. We'll look at that next week, uh, chapter 7, when we hit that. So we're going to miss some of the details here, but I want to take you to the fundamental thing, which is a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. And it's, I love it. it. It is a profound piece of the Bible. So you ready? Let's try and keep energised and motivated and, and work to it. Let me start the digging. Have a look at the, we're going to look at verse 13 to 20, but go back a couple of verses just to get the context. So grab your Bibles. And a way, way to keep yourself going here is to have a Bible in front of you and make yourself look at the text. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Let me read it for us. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We don't want you to become lazy. We want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Bunch of key words there in the context. We want you to be 
to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. Now this is just the context, but I'm going to have a quick rant about the idea of patience. Why does the writer talk to this group about being patient and what does that tell you about their situation that he needs to say to them to be patient? Now it's pretty obvious, but let me make the obvious clear. You don't tell someone who's living on a desert island with beautiful sunshine and perfect waves and all the food and drink they want to be patient. Because they've got it all. You tell a person who's living in cold, miserable, wet camp, <laughs> who is in three months time going to go to the desert island, you say to them to be patient because they haven't got it yet, you see. So the fact that you tell someone to be patient, the fact that he tells someone to be, these people to be patient, tells you something about their situation. What does it say about their situation? It's tough. It's not good. It's not easy. These people were struggling. They hadn't got what they were hoping for yet. And they were wanting to give up. Because it was easier before they'd become Christians. Now as Christians it had gotten really hard. Now it's critical to get all of this, it's really important for us. Because um, uh, it, expectations as Christians shape your ability to manage being a Christian. If you come into being a Christian, imagining that if I become a Christian, I'll become healthy and wealthy and prosperous and my life will be great. I'll be, it'll be my best life now and it'll make life better if I'm a Christian. If that's what you come into the Christian faith thinking, you are set for a fall. It'll, you, when reality hits, you'll be disillusioned and you'll distort things. And the Bible keeps saying, to, no, be patient. It tells you to be patient because you won't get everything in the Christian life. Oh, you'll get um, every spiritual blessing in Christ. You'll get a, a rock-solid thing to build your life on. We're going to get to that in a second. But that will all come with struggles, challenges, suffering, hurt. You see, the language of be patient, and so you'll inherit what has been promised, says about the Christian life that it's a time of struggling until it finally comes, but it's not come yet. Now, that's the context. Be patient. Hang in there, Christian, because it's not easy. You need to be patient. It will come, but hang in. And then verse 13, now we come to our part of the passage. Verse 13, he gives an example of someone who exemplified patience, who showed what it really was like to be patient. And it's Abraham. Look at verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, so he says to him, be patient. It's not going well. It's not easy. But let me tell you about Abraham. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what is promised. That is to say, Abraham didn't get what was promised for a long time. He lived a long part of his life without the promise being fulfilled. And that was tough for Abraham. Do you know the promise that you'll be the father of many nations, you'll have many descendants, was given to this, the first time it was given to this man, Abraham, was in the early parts of the book of Genesis. And uh, but when he was given that promise, he was like 75 years old. His wife was 65. So, it's, you know, it's a remarkable promise to have been given at that age. They'd been barren. 
They'd not been able to have kids for decades of their life. When Sarah heard that uh, at 65 she'll finally be a mother of many people, uh, she laughed. Me? <laughs> I'm 65. Now here's the, actually if she thought about it any longer she would have cried because can you imagine your grandmother giving birth to a child? Anyway the whole thing would break your part. It's, but it, it's, there's this sense of this is an extraordinary promise that we haven't received and we grieve. Now Abram's name actually means father. Every time he went someone, somewhere and someone used his name it would be father, father. And he'd be going I don't have kids. I've never been able to have kids. I've got a promise that says one day I'll be the father of thousands, millions of people, but I haven't even got them. And, and so he lived with this tension of not receiving what was promised. But then, verse 15, he did receive it. 25 years later, for two and a half decades, he lived waiting, not receiving what was promised. And the author says, be like him. Wait patiently. That's the preacher's point. Um, it's a simple but profound, and again, let me just bang on this for us. Uh, brothers and sisters who are Christians here tonight, imitate, imitate Abraham. Don't read the circumstances of your life as evidence that the Christian faith is not working. Really critical. Don't read the fact that you're not getting the things that you long to get as evidence that God doesn't love you, as evidence that you're out of touch with his will in some way. Don't, don't, don't buy into if I'm a really faithful Christian, everything will go wonderfully and I'll more, be a more than a conqueror. No, no, wait patiently because you don't get it. You, you won't get health. There'll be the cancer diagnosis that comes for many of you. There'll be the child that you never can have because some of you won't be able, you'll be infertile and you'll live with the grief of that and you'll wonder where is God in my life and how come as a Christian, that's normal Christian life, living with these griefs and hurts because we are promised much, just not yet. You won't get it yet. It's coming, but it's not ours yet. There'll be some of you who live with depression and mental illness and you think, where is God? How come I'm a Christian and I'm not being blessed to get... Be patient. Wait patiently. Now there's the simple point of this passage, but there's much more going on. And here's the thing. Why does the author choose Abraham as his example? So, you know, be patient, Hebrew Christians, it's tough. Uh, hang in there like Abraham. Now why does he choose Abraham? Well he is a good example of someone who had to wait patiently for a promise that took a long time to come but there's a more important reason why he chooses Abraham and it's quite, it's a little complex so stick with me, concentrate, right? I know you're fired up to do this okay. Why does he choose Abraham? Uh, well, it's the point of the whole passage. Why choose Abraham? Because the promise that's given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, that's what he's quoting from, the promise given to Abraham is the first time a promise from God has been given with an oath. It's the first time a promise of God to a human has been given with an oath. 
I swear by myself, God said. Now, when I say oath, I don't mean some profanity. I mean, um, you know how people... Well, he, he, you notice the passage talks a lot about oaths. When God makes his promise to Abraham, verse 13, since there was no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Um, verse 16, people swear by someone greater themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. If you want to say, uh, I'm really serious about this promise, you say, look, I swear on the life of my child. You swear by something precious to you and you say, it's effectively saying, if I don't keep this promise, take my child away from me. Or, or I, I swear um, I, by, the, by the truth of God and you're saying, if I don't keep my promise, God will strike me down. You swear on a Bible in, in a courtroom. These things are ways of making my promise even more sure and serious, you see. And he's talking a lot about oaths and promises. Well, the Abraham Example is the first time God makes a promise to someone and swears an oath. Now he swears by himself because there's no one greater to swear by. So he swears by his own nature and character and person. But he swears by himself. Um, you see, th this illustration is the big experience of God saying, I really mean this. Right? Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we're talking about an oath that God makes to Abraham because there's another occasion a very profoundly important occasion where God makes another promise and in that setting also swears an oath and it comes in Psalm 110 grab your Bibles let's be active go to Psalm 110 and have a look at it with me So Genesis is an example of God swearing an oath because he's so serious about his promise and God fulfills that promise. Psalm 110 is another occasion where God makes a promise and swears an oath because he's so serious about the promise. Psalm 110 verse 4. Psalm 110 verse 4, you've got it. The Lord has sworn, he's sworn an oath and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Well, I'll give you a very brief thought on that in a moment. But the point here is he's chosen Abraham because the first occasion an oath has been used by God to, to bolster his promise. This is, the, this is another deeply important occasion where God swears an oath to strengthen his promise and it relates to this man called Melchizedek. And you come back to Hebrews with me. The writer has, the preacher has been talking about Melchizedek and Psalm 110 all the way from chapter 5 and you'll go all the way through to chapter 7 talking about this psalm and Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Well, more next week. We'll do it very briefly just tonight. Melchizedek is a priest from the Old Testament who appears in the narrative, in the account of what happened back in the day. He appears, Abraham gives a tenth of all he had to him, and then Melchizedek disappears. You don't hear of him again. And he's recognised throughout the Old Testament to be the great high priest. You know, there were lots of other priests in the Old Testament, the, the Levitical priests, the, Levi, the priests from the tribe of Levi. But Melchizedek, 
He's the great one. And in a nation that realised you need a priest to connect sinners to a holy God, in a nation that realised without a priest to offer sacrifice and make it so that sinners can be forgiven and restored, without a priest, we're dead. In a nation that realised that, they were deeply concerned to know that there would be a priest who could do that work perfectly. And the Levitical priests, the whole bunch of Levite priests, did it poorly for three reasons. Because they were mortal, they kept dying, so they could only do it for a little while, then they died. They were sinners themselves, so they had to sacrifice for their own sin. And they were powerless, they didn't have much power. And so Psalm 110 says, one day, there's going to be a new priest and that priest is going to be the great priest in the order of Melchizedek, the great priest. We're going to go to a whole new priesthood who will be the kind of priesthood, Hebrews chapter 6, who can actually secure us, verse 19 and 20, in relationship with God, right in the centre of the temple so that we can have our sins completely covered and paid for and we can be cleansed and we can be established in relationship with God by a priest who never dies, who doesn't have to deal with his own sin, who is powerful and effective. We can have a priest finally, you see. And so this writer is saying, it matters that we have this priest. Now, why talk about an oath? Because the point he's making is that you can be so sure that that priest is coming because God swears an oath. He doesn't just promise that this coming one will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He swears an oath so that, verse 16, it puts an end to all argument. So that, verse 17, the unchanging nature of his purpose would be very clear. It would be confirmed with an oath. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope in Jesus, the high priest, may be greatly encouraged. We have this anchor. This hope is an anchor, solid, firm and secure, stable, strong, locking us giving us this kind of stability. Now, there's the passage. So he's wanting us to be patient in the midst of difficulties. He shows how a promise about what God will finally give us is so certain because he swears an oath. And he gives particular reference to that with the priestly work of Jesus who is sworn, God swears an oath to say, I will make him a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You can go to the bank with this promise because I'm swearing an oath on it and you need this priest and you can know that he will be that priest. There's the shape of the passage. What do we do with all of this? Well, there is the detail of what it means for Jesus to be the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and how that secures the believer in the inner sanctum, which we haven't got time to go into tonight. But the foundational idea is this. God made an oath when he promised. He made a promise with an oath. 
that this Jesus is the priest in the order of Melchizedek so that on the basis of that certainty he can encourage the Jewish Christians to persevere with Jesus. He's their only hope before a holy God because God made a promise with an oath so that by two unchangeable things you can be sure God means what he means. And the two unchangeable things, for instance, there in verse 17, the unchanging nature of his purpose, God is invincible, he will achieve what he says, and that he's made this oath. Now, do you see, this passage has the key to the life of security. It has the secret to you finding a rock upon which you can build your life and find security. It has the key to you having a life that's strong and firm and not insecure, but secure. Now, what is the key? What's the key that you can build your life on that will give you security? Now, don't say anything, but just get active. Think, think. Uh, what, what, what's the key? What would be the thing that this author is saying is the foundation upon which you can find security and certainty in life? What is it? Think about it. I'll give it to you in a second, but I want you to engage. I'll tell you what it is. The thing that's the rock you can build your life on to find security and stability and get rid of insecurity and anxiety is the promise of of God the word of God that is a promise with an oath now I don't know how you react I don't know if you find yourself going yes I suspect most of you are going what did he just say <laughs> I suspect most of you are going oh that doesn't sound very rock-solid you know, 2,000 years ago, when this preacher preached this sermon to the Jewish Christians, Jews who'd become Christians, it would have nailed it for them. They would have gone, yes, that's right, Psalm 110, a promise that order of Melchizedek with an oath, absolutely secure, Jesus is that one, nailed it for me. I'm now stabilised. The Jewish Christians would have got it. But when we hear it, it gets little traction amongst us. We find ourselves going, I don't know, it doesn't do much for me. Now, why is that? I want to suggest to you it's because the last two or three hundred years, I know you haven't been around all that time, but the last two or three hundred years, our society has done a, a work of convincing the world that God is just an idea. He's, he's just a... Uh, a, a, an optional thought that people can believe in or not believe in and he's not, he's not particularly powerful or great, he's just someone you can have or not have. But, but if you really want to live life, you don't need to have him. Our world has done a very big job on making sure that the world sees God as just an idea. That wasn't the Jewish way of thinking, you see. We have been taught that if you want a really solid thing to build your life on, it's not God, it's something else. Now, I want you to think with me and call out some thoughts, actually. If you went to your friends outside of church and said, 
you know, what, what do you think you can ground your life on to find security and stability in life? Where, where's the place you go to actually find stability and security? Um, where do you think most people would... Give us some thoughts on what people would say to the answer of that question. Where do you think people would go? Within yourself. Within yourself, yeah, within a, uh, the self-esteem, your own sense of confidence about life, yeah. Money would be one option. Get the big bank balance, get the, uh, get the big job with lots of money and then you'll be a secured, you'll be happy, secure for life, yeah. Yeah, get property. If I can just break into the property market and get the house, I'll, I'll go, ah, oh, at least now, whatever happens, I've got this house. Yeah. Family. Family, some would say, um, do, do you know, really the place to find stability and security is in a loving family. So, you know, my marriage partner, my parents, my kids, if I, that's the place to find security and stability, yeah? Yeah, matter, material things. Yeah, yeah, the stuff around me. Yeah, sport, sport, um, sport and achievement. Do you know if I can be a success in those areas, then I'll it'll bolster my sense of who I am, and I'll yeah. There's a you can, I mean, we haven't got to, you, there might be other thoughts. I've got to, I'm going to go through some thoughts here with you. Uh, there's a bunch of places people go, but what I want you to notice is they're all in this world. They're all in this world. But you think about them with me. How good are they really? Let's start with the big ones. The material world. Matter. You know, we have a saying, it's rock solid. You can build your life on the rock. Because for us, rocks are solid and substantial and you can, you know, whatever happens, I, I, you know, I'm on this rock-solid place. But you think about matter and the planet with me for a moment. Is it really that solid to build your life on? The planet, do you know the planet has no foundation? <laughs> it's, just, it's just floating in the air. It's got nothing, right? You spin it around, there's nothing on the air. And more than that, the, the rocks that we're standing on are standing on what's on the inside? Molten chocolate or something, I don't know, but it's a, it's a kind of, it's the core that's molten. There's nothing, underneath this superficial layer is a moving molten core that blows up and breaks and it, it looks stable and strong because we don't look for very long. But if you look over a long period of time, you realise, actually, it's not that rock solid at all. Rock solid's not very solid. And, and I'll give you more. Did you know 150 years ago, scientists, if, they, if you asked them about matter, the stuff of physical things, they would have said matter was eternal, that it's always been there and always will. But then along came the scientists who discovered the Big Bang. And suddenly they had to revise the whole way they thought about matter and the existence of it and realise that actually there was a time when matter came into existence. It wasn't eternal, it's not eternal, it's actually finite. Matter started at some point, which therefore means it will end at some point. And scientists tell us it'll end in a heat death with the sun burning everything up and then collapsing in on itself. That is to say, in the large time frame, 
This planet that has no foundations, that's sitting on a molten core, that's matter itself, that's not eternal, will itself burn up and cease to exist at some point. If you build your life by building things, thinking that's where I'm going to get my stability by making a contribution to the world, you are, you are foolish in the extreme because it won't last. Nothing lasts of matter. It, it, it feel, we're told it is, but it's not. In fact, the scientists this morning all came to me and said, and even matter itself is, you know, it's more space than it is physical things. It's actually atoms have actually got more space. In there, and matter is really energy and um, waves. It's not really, what is matter? And you're kind of going, you're kind of going, it's, I've got nothing. I don't want to sit down anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, and, and so to build your life on this planet and its future, very insubstantial. Let me give you another one. Science itself. Many people say the place to build your life as a rock is, is, which we can't use that illustration anymore really, but you know the place to build your life that's really solid is science because it's got all the answers. It tells you what the truth is. You can know what really is the truth. But here's the thing about science. 150 years ago they thought matter was eternal. Now they realise it's not. What's going to happen in another 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? They're going to change it again. Science keeps shifting. And more than this, here, this is ketchup. Science itself is grounded on assumptions that can't be proven, that might be wrong. Science can't prove the assumptions that are the very basis of its ability to function. I'll give you one of those assumptions that the external world is real. That's an assumption. Is it that we're dreaming? And the only real is internally my consciousness, and I'm dreaming all of you. Well, science can't answer that question. It just assumes that the external world that we're studying in science is real, but it can't prove it. So the very foundation of science is an unprovable assumption that's got no stability to it. Yeah, mathematics, that's part of the whole process of science itself, has a series of assumptions that are unprovable by science or maths. The, the, the foundations of it are like a house of cards. What about relationships? Some of you mentioned relationships. Lots of people base their security. Well, I can't, yeah, I can't base my security on the future of the earth and what's going to happen here, matter and science. Yeah, I can't. But at least I've got a loving husband or wife or loving parents and I've got a family. That's my stability. You know, I know your families. I wouldn't be basing my life on them. Do, do, you know, um, when you get married, if you get married, some of you are, but if you get married, you'll be married to a sinner who will let you down repeatedly and who will then one day die and leave you without them. Build your life on them, they will fail you and leave you. Do you know what? You know, as you get older, you go through stages. I don't know. Some of you have noticed this. You 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 um you start going to certain different parties as you get older. When you know when you're going when you're finishing school, you start going to 18th birthday parties a lot. Then you start going to 21st birthday parties. You know how this kind of progress happens. Then you start going to 50th birthday parties. All right, and um, and your friends are all turning 50. Then you start going to funerals. A lot of funerals, not for your friends so much though some, but for their parents. And there's a stage where parents begin to die. And here's what happens. 
When your first parent dies, this, my both parents are still alive, but I, I talk to lots of people and see it happening. When your first parent dies, there's great grief about the loss of someone who's been part of your life and so on. But here's what happens when the second parent dies. Your history goes. Lots of people reflect on the fact that when the second one, you know, my mother died, but then five years later my dad died. And with the death of my dad, my connection to my history is gone. My roots have gone. I haven't got, haven't got that stability back anymore. It's just me now. I'm the last one. If you build your life and stability on your family, it will fail you and let you down. Relationships will fail you. What about building a life on finances and property? Do not be a fool. Do you know, <laughs> property, um, if you've bought a house in the last six months, I'm so sorry. <laughs> because you bought at the peak of the market. It's now going down. I talked to a real estate agent this morning. He said, I said, um, next two years, down? He said, no, sooner than that. It's on the way down. He said, auction rates are already declining. You think your property is going to be a secure investment. You have not seen the longevity of what happens in the world around us. Yeah. Uh, the, my job, my career, my retirement savings, my retirement savings, I build up retirement savings, I build up a big bank, then a global financial crisis hits and people lost millions. Health, I'll build my life on health. Do you know there's a man who invented jogging? I, don't, I mean, that was Adam, I guess. I don't mean he invented ability to run, but he invented jogging as a fitness pastime and made it popular in, in America. Um, and he, he, he jogged every day 13, 14, 15 miles. He was one of the fittest men alive. You know, at the age of 50, he died while jogging. Don't think that if you eat right, keep fit, you won't die young. The point of that story is if you jog, you'll die. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not the answer. What about ideas? What about if, if I just, look, I, you know, I can't trust science, I can't trust the world, but I can trust, I can trust the truth of love. Love is love. And I can at least just rely on that as the thing to live for. Oh, let me run through that one very quickly. Do you know, if there is no God, then what is love? Love is just a primal evolutionary instinct to draw me towards someone to procreate and spread my genes. That's all it is. Dressed up as something lovely. And you get a movie that is at Christmas time about a couple who meet and fall in love. But all it is, is genetics, drawing them together to procreate. That's, love, that's all love is. Love is not going to last if there is no God. Um, friends, I... In, within. Um, that is all very well and good until you actually have proper insight about what's inside you. That will be a wonderful thing as long as you don't look too closely about yourself. Because the problem is as you go on in life you begin to realise either with greater insight how truly corrupted and perverted I am or you realise by breaking down your ability to have insight that you stop seeing yourself for who you really are and pretend. Yourself is not the answer. 
My point in all of this is when you go through all the options about where I can put my roots down and find stability and strength, anything that you try to find as that place inside this world will fail you. Where can you find a rock that truly is stable, that will give you stability forever? Only outside of us. Only outside the world. Only in the unchanging nature of an eternal God who is sovereign and powerful. Who made all things. That is the only place where there is true stability and security. Because he is unchanging. Because he is eternal. Because he is sovereign and all-powerful. He is invincible. If you put your trust in him, you will never be let down. Now, I get it. This takes a whole step for many of us today to get past what we've been brainwashed into thinking. We've been brainwashed into thinking that the really insubstantial thing is God, spirit, optional. The really substantial things are the things of the world. But when you actually stop, get off your phone and stop distracting yourself with games and sports and actually stop and think about it, you go, anything in this world, matter, science, relationships, money, health, anything I look at is, is, is a house of cards. It's got no nothing. The only place is outside of this world in God. Now you go to yourself, well, hang on, God's invisible. I'd rather go with what I can see. Well, what you can see is going to burn up. But anyway, I'll go with what I can see. Well, here's the thing. That invisible God has made himself visible so that you can know he's there and know how trustworthy and reliable he is. He has made himself visible in history so that we might have encouragement. He has spoken. Here's what he's done. He's made promises that are crazy promises, that are mirac promises that can't just happen, that can only happen if there's a miraculous thing happen. He promises a 65-year-old or 75-year-old, when you're 90 and 100, I'm going to give you a child. God does that so that when they finally have the child, everyone goes, that only happened because God promised. God does that again and again and again through the history of Israel. Through the whole history of Israel, the whole history of the Old Testament, we're given by God to see promises that he then fulfills in history so that we might be assured that outside of us is a God who is real. Now we find ourselves going, well, hang on, Old Testament, gee, is it real? Up until the 1850s, thereabouts, or around the period of the 1800s, for some quite long time, a lot of scholars began to debate and uh, throw out the idea the Old Testament was just lots of myths and fairy tales. There was no evidence that any of it was true. And then, in 1896, they discovered, let's see if we can get this up on the slides, uh, an archaeologist discovered the Merneptah, I think it's called, the Merneptah Stell. This bit of rock with inscriptions on it. And they dated that block of rock back to 1230 BC, 1230 years BC. And on it is an inscription that says, 
Israel is laid waste. I think it says her seed is no more. Bang. Israel's real in the Old Testament. In 1200 BC, there was Israel with Egypt fighting them. And so the, what's said in the Bible is suddenly established in history. And I'll give you another one. This is called the Moabite stone in 1868, a little bit earlier. Um, this stone was discovered by archaeologists and on it is a series of inscriptions and statements about three kings that existed in the ancient Near East that we'd never heard of outside of the Bible. These three kings are mentioned in 2 Kings, chapter 3, I think it is. 2 Kings, the book of Kings, no one believed it was true until this stone was discovered and it mentioned those exact three kings. Brothers and sisters, from 1800s through to now, friends who are experts in this area tell me that we have a, a growing number of these kinds of discoveries that secure the Bible as exactly what it claims to be. And the most wonderful piece of evidence for all of this is the coming of God incarnate in the person of Jesus, born as a man amongst us, lives, dies on a cross, rises again from the grave in history with witnesses, with testimony, with all the evidence around it, that we might know that the invisible God has entered into our world and is real, substantial. And his promises, when he makes promises, they're real and substantial. In fact, the Lord Jesus says, heaven and earth may pass away. Heaven and earth may pass away. But my words will never fail. The grass withers and the flowers fail. The physical stuff burns up. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Because it's the word of the sovereign, eternal God who's all-purposeful, powerful, invincible. There is nothing solid like the eternal God who speaks. Anything that you can see will pass. Any human thing, it'll be gone. The only thing that's solid is that which is outside of us, the eternal, sovereign God who makes promises. What does this mean for us? The key to our life, the key to our life, the key to every human life to find true security for, for now and into the future is the God who makes promises and can be trusted. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is nothing to you except that God has promised that if you look to Jesus, you'll be saved. I just want you to see how the, the power of the promise is. Jesus dies, rises again. It's a fact of history. He's standing in heaven as the one human who's saved. But what benefit is his death and resurrection to me, Andrew Heard? The only benefit he is to me is if the promise of God is true. The promise that says, Andrew, if you look to the Son and trust in his merits, not your own, I will forgive you. It's a promise, he says. Without that promise, I'm lost. But with that promise... A promise made by a God who utters a, an oath to make certain to us that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The God who makes a promise with an oath makes it possible for me to be utterly confident and secure that wretched that I am, when I die, I can be forgiven. Because God, who promised, 
is faithful. So brothers and sisters, persevere. Stick at it in tough times. Because the God who promised is invincible and has uttered an oath and you can be absolutely certain where nothing else is certain that if you continue to be trusting the Lord Jesus you will enter eternity with him. You will be with him forever in a new creation where you will never lack again. Persevere. Be patient. Let's finish there. I pray, let's not do Q&A, we'll come back to it next week. Yep, let's do that. I can see you all. You've done very well, but let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us appreciate how fundamentally important it is that you are the rock, the one who is outside of us, the creator who is eternal and invincible, all-powerful, sovereign, who makes promises who is utterly faithful, whose purposes cannot fail, who has uttered an oath. We pray, please, you'd help us appreciate the greatness of these things, the stability and strength that these things give us, and that you might help us, therefore, put our confidence in you and not in anything in this world. Please, we pray, help us, therefore, live secure lives, stable lives, lives that they can, therefore, flourish in the midst of all the difficulties that will come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.